The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. If you have a Bible, would you turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2? There are Bibles in the back, or open up on your Bible app. Revelation, chapter 2, the last book of the Bible, easy to find. We are continuing in these seven letters to seven real ancient churches. And through them, Jesus is addressing his entire church in all places, at all times, including this church. So let's pray and then see how the risen Christ would address us right here. Holy Spirit, we ask you to Open the eyes of our hearts and to strengthen our hearts wherever we are weary this morning or discouraged. Would you minister to us through your word? We ask you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 12. Please follow along with me. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. In 1961, Lieutenant Jack Ravel climbed out of a muddy hole in the ground in North Carolina. He was holding a gray sphere about the size of a volleyball against his chest. Jack was just 25 years old, but he was in charge of the situation. So he was the one who had to hold this sphere against his chest and climb up the ladder out of the muddy hole. The volleyball-sized orb that Jack carried was the core of a hydrogen bomb a bomb that had accidentally fallen out of a B-52 bomber in eastern North Carolina. True story. That bomb had enough uranium 
and plutonium in it to kill thousands of people instantly and make parts of North Carolina permanently uninhabitable. But they had defused the bomb. And Jack, wearing only his military fatigues and a pair of gloves, carried the most radioactive part of that bomb against his chest for 15 minutes. His actions were heroic. Sadly, Mr. Ravel died three years ago after fighting a disease brought on by a military career of handling radioactive accidents. What Mr. Ravel did heroically, we can do tragically as a church. We can cradle in our arms something spiritually radioactive. We can hold close to our chests something spiritually disastrous for those all around us. Not a bomb drop from a B-52 bomber, but a bomb of serious spiritual compromise. Teachings, teachings that would compromise our allegiance to our King, Jesus Christ. That's the danger here that Jesus says we must be alert to as a church. That we not hold close to our chest and cradle in our arms radioactive beliefs that would affect all those around us and undermine our allegiance to him. Friends, there is a sober warning here for us to learn from and heed. So, to avoid what would be spiritually radioactive among us, let us see what Jesus commends, commands, and promises. Let us see what he commends, commands, and promises. First, Jesus commends holding fast. He commends here holding fast to him. From our king, this Palm Sunday, notice verse 12, and to the angel or messenger, messenger representing the church, the church in Pergamum, write the words, the authoritative words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, later, this sword symbolically proceeds from Jesus' mouth, so we think of it as his word, and that's true. But here, this is in particular symbolizing judgment. So, ominous clouds of judgment overshadow this letter. But first, commendation. 13, verse 13. I know as he says in each letter, I know. Now, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Pergamum had a huge throne-like altar to Zeus. So that might be part of the reference here. But more so, more so, Pergamum was the center for emperor worship in this province. It was the Mecca for saying, Caesar is Lord, and burning incense to him. And remember, at this time, the emperor Domitian, who I believe is on the throne at this point, 
Domitian had declared himself Lord and God. So you are to worship Domitian, the emperor, as Lord and God. I mean, the next time you want to complain about our government, read the book of Revelation. It will encourage you. It will encourage you. Things, things are bad here. And we are reminded of the big picture, aren't we? The cosmic battle with Satan, an evil spiritual being working through ungodly powers like Rome in this day. And yet, Jesus says, yet, in verse 13, yet you hold fast my name, present tense, right now, in an ongoing way, you are holding fast my name and did not deny my faith or faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, killed, martyred, where Satan dwells. A number of early Christian writers say of Christians in this era, they died well. Christians died so well for Jesus in this day, the unbelieving public wondered, where did this people Get the peace and the courage to face the flames and the beasts and the sword like that. That's what Antipas did. And Jesus calls him his faithful witness. And so notice in verse 13, the church during that time, that spasm of persecution, the church held fast and was still holding fast to Jesus' name. They were not renouncing Jesus' name, despite living where Satan dwells. Now, thankfully, we're not facing martyrdom. But Jesus knows our situation, too, and right where we live, and the challenges we may face. He knows... He knows the hostility you might encounter when you testify to your faith in Jesus. He knows the resistance to faith in Christ at your workplace, in the neighborhood, or on your campus. And, and can't we acknowledge there are idolatrous devotions to things in Southern California. We have our own idols that we worship here. Jesus knows all those things and, listen, would commend us in light of verse 13. Grace Church, you are holding fast my name. And he would commend you individually for the same. I wonder if some of us just need to hear this much today. You are holding fast his name. Well done. Jesus loves that. He sees that. He loves that. You're holding fast his name. You might be persevering through trials or heartache or mental or emotional anguish, but despite what you're feeling or facing, you're holding fast his name. You're not renouncing his name. Jesus sees you, and he would encourage you today. He would commend you. I mean, let, let's learn from Jesus here. Let's, let's encourage one another in light of verse 13. I think a whole new category of encouragement could open us up for us. Let's commend what Jesus commends here. I have said to Debbie Sperry and Jeff Richards on a number of occasions, 
Thank you for modeling for me what it looks like to persevere and trust God. They have modeled for me holding fast through cancer. And when someone is persevering through anything at all, you can say, you're holding fast to Christ's name. Well done. Jesus sees that, and he loves that. You should be so encouraged. But despite that commendation, this church was holding some radioactive material close to their chest, cradling it in their arms. So secondly, Jesus commands no compromise in allegiance. Oh, he, he commends them for holding fast his name. A and then he commands, in effect, no compromise in our fundamental allegiance to him. Notice verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there, some there, who who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. And you also, you also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Notice something here. You've got the church holding fast to Christ's name, but at the same time, some holding on to other stuff. It's the same word, different forms of the same word. Hold fast my name, but people are holding on to teachings. Teachings likened to when a Moabite king hired a guy named Balaam to curse Israel in the wilderness. Balaam says, I can only bless them. I can only say, I can only say what God says. But then we read in Numbers 25, the people, the people of Israel, began to whore, whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited people to sacrifice to their gods, and the people, the people of Israel, ate and bowed down to their gods. It was sexual and spiritual immorality, sexual and spiritual adultery in God's eyes. And later in Numbers 31, we're told it was Balaam's advice. We can only surmise that Balaam said, you know, that cursing thing didn't work out, but I have an idea. Seduce them sexually, and you'll seduce them spiritually. And Jesus says, you're tolerating the same compromise, Pergamum. Same thing probably in the form of this teaching to the Nicolaitans. Now, to appreciate this, you need to understand their situation. It was not an easy one. In this same region, this same part of present-day Turkey, not too, too far from Pergamum, about 20 years after this letter that we have, there was a Roman governor named Pliny, and Pliny wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan. And we have that letter. You can Google it later and read this letter from Pliny to the emperor Trajan. 
Pliny writes for advice because the Roman public was riled up against the Christians and Pliny's job was to calm them down. You see, the Romans viewed Christians as dangerous. Engaging in these idolatrous festivals, sacrificing to the gods and the emperor, that's what kept Rome safe and prosperous, they thought. And the Christians wouldn't do that. So they were atheists, people said. They won't worship the gods. And they were treasonous, treasonous rebels, putting the whole society in danger, not worshiping the emperor and angering the gods. And so Pliny explained his practice that he wanted advice on. He said, my practice is I get one of these accused Christians and I interrogate them three times. I give them three chances. If they will, as I interrogate them, if they will denounce Christ and worship a statue of the emperor with prayer, incense, and wine, I let them go. Nice of Pliny. If they denounce Christ and worship a statue of the emperor, you may go your way. If they refuse to do that in their three interrogations, he has them executed. That just gives you a feel for how difficult this is. Again, that was written 20 years later, but you can sense the pressure these Christians could and did face at times. Antipas did. Jesus is faithful witness. So it seems some were saying in the church, what's wrong with a little Caesar is Lord? What's wrong with a little incense to the emperor? And we still believe in Jesus. We're holding fast his name, but, but let's fit in. Come on. Join the festivities of the temple to Zeus. Go to the feast. Worship the emperor. Yeah, I know there's a little sexual immorality there, but we can keep our jobs. Our families can eat. We'll be safe. Be, be flexible in your allegiance to Jesus. Just fit in. And Jesus says, that's radioactive. He's saying, I, I know not all of you hold to those teachings, but it's radioactive. You all got to deal with this. It's spiritual adultery, just like Israel engaged it. You see, Jesus, wow, he cares a lot about what we believe. You know, I think there's a helpful insight we can derive from these seven letters. In these letters, we find what Jesus most values in a local church. Truth and love are the main things he rebukes these seven churches for, and he commends perseverance. I think that's a fair summation. Truth, love, and perseverance seem to be at the top of Jesus' list of priorities. Now, many other things matter, of course. Many other things are significant, absolutely. But here, here's the top of his list. Main priorities. Truth. You got truth. You need to have love. And you need to keep going. Pergamum was tolerating beliefs, teachings that 
that diluted Jesus' exclusive claim on our lives. The solution is in verse 16. Therefore, repent. Speaking to the whole church there. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and, and war against them, those who hold these teachings, and perhaps we're spreading them. I will war against them with the sword of my mouth, that sword of judgment. So notice, the whole church is commanded to repent. The whole church must change their minds. How? By no longer tolerating these teachings in their midst. So the core issue, you might say, really is a failure on behalf of the church to appropriately discipline. The core issue is the church tolerating teachings that must not be tolerated, teachings that dilute Christ's exclusive claims on our hearts and lives. So we have this shared here, corporate responsibility here. Allow no compromise on issues of fundamental allegiance to Jesus. So what's the, what's the individual application of that? Well, a couple things we could say. One is, to apply this rightly, we must do what's been called theological triage. Theological triage. If you are an emergency room doctor, and three people come into the ER simultaneously, one is having a heart attack, one seems to have a broken arm, and one has a sprained wrist. You have to do what they call triage. You must triage that situation. You must determine what is vital to address and what is less vital. What can wait? Nick's shaking his head, so he, I've got some confirmation medically. The person, the person having a heart attack gets seen right away. No waiting. Get in there. Address that right away. The person with the maybe broken arm, we're going to get to you when we can. The person with a sprained wrist, you're going to be fine. <laughs> that would be me. What they do medically is what we must do theologically, friends, to apply this passage rightly. Discern what are the vital issues. The issues that, that define allegiance to Jesus, like the nature of God, omniscient, omnipresent, but separate from creation, distinct from creation, no new age pantheism. God is triune, three persons, one divine essence. The full deity and humanity of Jesus, virgin birth, perfect sinless life, wrath, satisfying sacrifice, triumphant resurrection and future return the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture, God's infallible word, and perhaps we could list some more things, but that's what came to my mind. Allegiance-defining issues. We cannot alter those to fit in with the world. We cannot change those to be more palatable to the culture. That would be coddling radioactive material. And yes... Yes, if you're wondering, are there other issues that come to mind that we can't compromise on with this world, like today's hot-button issues of 
aspects of gender sexuality or the nature of marriage. That's true. But just to keep all this together, don't forget the opposite error in Ephesus we saw two weeks ago. Because in Ephesus, they rejected these teachings of the Nicolaitans. But do you recall? Jesus said, you've lost your former love. Probably, especially their love for those outside the church. So Jesus says, do you recall? To be a lampstand, you got to have truth and love. Or I'm going to take away your lampstand. So keep that in mind here with Pergamum. We need truth and love, both, both, to shine the light of Christ into our culture. My point is there are issues where we cannot compromise our allegiance to Christ, though it costs us financially, or it costs us approval, or it costs us acceptance, or, God forbid, costs us our lives. But what I'm trying to drive at here is not every issue is like that. I just wanted to guard us a little bit against taking this and applying it too broadly. We have to do some triage. There are a lot of issues Christians disagree about. Godly Christians disagree about. You know this. The timing of baptism. Male-female roles in marriage. Particular events surrounding Christ's return. The, the age of the earth or universe. Some of those we have teaching positions on, and some of those we don't intentionally. And that doesn't even touch on the host, right? The host of preferences and practices that we can differ on amongst each other. So when a fellow believer disagrees with you on issues that are not heart attack issues, our temptation can be to go verse 16. Jesus is going to war against you <laughs> on that issue because you disagree with me. Isn't that what we want to say in our hearts? That's, that's what I can do in my heart. Jesus is going to war against you, or I might. But we need to do some triage and recognize you know what? This is a sprained wrist. It's a sprained wrist they have. We're going to deal tenderly with a sprained wrist. We're going to baby a sprained wrist. A sprained wrist might heal on its own, or we might just live with it together, and that's okay. There's a book by Gavin Ortland entitled Finding the Right Hills to Die On that's all about this, finding the right hills to die on. So to apply this correctly, we need to do some triage. And then maybe secondly, just to push the application, maybe secondly, check our own hearts as well. In her acceptance speech for a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 2018 Gold, Gold Golden Globes, Oprah Winfrey said, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth, speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we have. Isn't that the mantra of our day? Speaking your truth. Here's the problem. 
It's not just Oprah that has her own truth. That's also Tab. That tends to be all of us in ways. So maybe application could also involve discerning, am I living by my own truth more than Jesus' truth? Maybe application could also look like, has my heart begun to embrace the world's message on certain issues so that my heart, my truth becomes an idolatrous devotion to wealth or an idolatrous devotion to ease or an idolatrous devotion to beauty or appearance or sexual freedom or power or you fill in the blank. There's probably a place for us also, isn't there, to just check our hearts and say, am I living more by my truth or Jesus' truth? Am I in any way rationalizing a bit of compromise in my allegiance to Christ? Look, our hearts are prone to wander. Mine is. So where you see that happening, and it does, get others involved. Get the help of those around you, friends or those in your small group. Say, hey, help me process and look to Christ. Let's help each other apply the good news of what Christ has accomplished. So Jesus commends this church. He has a command for this church. And then, and then he has a promise. He has a promise. Thirdly, Jesus promises eternal fellowship. Commends them for holding fast his name. Commands. No compromise in your allegiance to me. And then a promise to motivate us. A promise. Eternal fellowship. Eternal fellowship with him. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, all his churches, to the one who conquers, who overcomes, who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, a few different metaphors there that are a bit challenging, but the first one is hidden manna, manna being the God-given food Israel ate in the wilderness, hidden seeming to refer to something that will be revealed at the end time. So in our journey through the wilderness of this world, Jesus holds out eternal sustenance, eternal food, you might say, waiting for us. Second, a white stone. A white stone might refer to someone who was acquitted by a jury, or it might refer to the white stone given a victor in the games, allowing them entrance to the banquet, entrance to the feast, like an invitation. And in light of the hidden manna, I would lean that way, admittance to the feast, the Marriage Supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. And then a new name, a new name which no one knows. A new name is a new status. A name no one else knows implies close personal relationship. So this seems to speak of identity in Jesus, 
unto close personal fellowship with Jesus. Identity in Jesus unto close personal relationship with Jesus. Together, together, the point seems to be an invitation, an invitation to end time, eternal fellowship with Christ. Now, I think that's a little challenging given the foreignness of these metaphors. So I thought about if Jesus was writing to us this letter today, I think he might use the metaphor of a passport. A passport. Last summer, for our 25th anniversary, Sung and I went to Paris, fulfilling a lifelong dream for my sweet wife. It was my first international travel experience. Well, that's not true. I have been to Tijuana, <laughs> which counts as international travel. That is international travel. All right, thank you. I just want to establish that. Beyond going to Tijuana, I had no international travel experience. And we're flying back from France. We're in Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris. And for whatever reason, it is chaos, or it feels like chaos. We're being funneled into this mass of humanity to have our faces scanned so we can leave the country. But we don't know why we're being funneled there. We don't know where to go. People are shouting all these different languages, and we're just moving with this mass of humanity, hoping we're somehow in the right line. It felt very unsettling and chaotic. Again, limited travel experience. We arrive in Atlanta, and it was this peaceful, short line, clearly delineated, relaxing music playing in the background. And then they asked for my passport. Welcome, Mr. Trainer. Come on in. You're welcome to come back in. I was so relieved. I was so thankful for my passport. Jesus is saying, you have a far greater passport. Oh, he said, oh, oh my, my, Tab. You have a far greater passport enabling you to an eternal, glorious welcome. He's saying, come and feast. Your passport is stamped. Your entry is welcome. You who conquers, you who overcomes, you who is victorious, you will enter my presence forever. It's a blood-bought invitation, a blood-bought passport to eternal fellowship with your risen Savior. The point is, that's better than any radioactive compromise in this life. That's to motivate us and keep us going and persevering and never compromising our allegiance to Jesus because of what lies ahead. He's going to welcome you and say, feast, I got hidden manna for you, so that right now you say, you know what? That promise is so glorious, I'm not going to give myself to anything else that would undermine allegiance to Jesus Christ. So friends, hold fast. Hold fast to Jesus. Not compromising your allegiance, but enduring for fellowship with him. Hold fast. Not compromising your allegiance to Christ, but enduring because of the promise of what's to come. Eternal 
fellowship with Christ. Let's pray. And we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.